Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for your continued support of the show. My next guest is Cameron Armstrong. He is a husband, father, writer, ice bather, drummer, and a licensed clinical social worker. Today, we're doing a deep dive into the human condition, mental health, and knowing that every house has a story. We also talk about how we all can use therapy to turn our crap into currency. All right, Cameron, thank you, man, for coming on to the Parish the Podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. I don't even know the name of my own show. Parish the Thought Podcast, not Parish the Podcast, because that would be bad, too, because we want it to keep going. So thank you. Now that I've word vomited everywhere. What a great way to end. What a great way to end. I mean, start. Start, (laughs) and it might end the same way. But uh, so you're a... a licensed clinical social worker, right? Correct. So for the average duck that doesn't know what all those fancy letters mean at the end of your name, what is that? A licensed clinical social worker. So that means I have at least a master's degree of education or what's considered, quote unquote, a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to say, I've got over because you're a professional. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Like when in our program, they were saying like, after this, people will treat you as a professional. And that's why they were so dang hard on us and, and pushed us so hard, which I really appreciated. But I've got over 20 years experience in the clinical field of therapy. I got a bachelor's degree in behavioral science at Utah Valley University. And then I did my master's at Brigham Young University. I worked in residential treatment centers for, gosh, for years. Oh my gosh, long time. It's where I met your wife as the art therapist there. She's fantastic. And now I'm a therapist who owns my own private practice. I do telehealth therapy from my own office and I can do therapy with anyone in any of the cities of the States that I am licensed in. It's kind of nice. You don't have to be in driving distance to be for my therapy to be available. Just kind of cool. Technology is pretty phenomenal. I have to say it's uh, mm-hmm. I love yeah, it. we learned from COVID that, that, Teletherapy works just as fine as in person. Just talking really, is talking. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the, that's the, you need a bigger business card with all those credentials <laughs> for sure. Right. Do you have a business like it's a, is it like a business of in framed like business poster? Here's my business poster. Yeah, it should be. You know, okay. it'll be a big billboard that on I-15. Yeah. So tell me why you do this. Why this field? Why not? When you were a little kid, you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm like, I want to be an LSLCSW. Like, yeah. That, son? I wanted to be an astronaut is what I really wanted to be. But um, it probably been easier. <laughs> if, no, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, I, I was lucky. I got myself into some situations that really just gave me some good opportunities. So you don't know what's going to happen. But if you always put yourself in situations where you can get yourself opportunities and that works. And college was like that for me. Um, I was working at a, a residential treatment center at the time that I started college and I knew some therapists that I really liked. And so I thought I'll take some psychology classes, you know, just because you have to do that for your generals anyways. 
Um, and so my psychology 101 or 1010, she, she had us, she had like a list of movies. Uh, it's like read chapter one and watch one of these three movies and then write a paper on how you saw that chapter, you know, in that movie. And it just made psychology come to life for me to be able to like kind of see it. And so it's forever changed the way that I watch movies, <laughs> you know, like the movie first, uh, first night uh, was a movie with Sean Connery and Richard Greer. Do you remember that one? I, uh, I recognize the name, but I, I couldn't, I didn't see the movie now. Yeah. I mean, it's not a fantastic movie, but there's this one part where Richard Gere plays Sir Galahad has to go through this gauntlet. You know, it's like the TV show Wipeout, but in the middle ages. And uh, so like, Sean Connery's King Arthur, you know, and he got he gets through this gauntlet, you know, which no one has done before. And Sean Connery asks him, you know, like, how did you do that? And he he just said something that I just never forgot. He said, uh, well, perhaps the other ones, the other people failed because their fear made them go backwards when they should have gone forward. And you know, like that's basically kind of what therapy's about. It's like helping people conquer their fear, conquer their issues, and move forward where sometimes their issues make them want to go backwards. So, because so, you know, it's a, nat a natural reaction to fear is to to recoil, right? Right. Right. You want to? You don't want to embrace it or lean into it. You want to run away from it, right? Right. And then in my psychology, uh, my second psychology class, ten twenty, the the teacher asked for volunteers, someone to come down and be a, a client and she was gonna be the therapist and then someone to be the therapist and she would be the client. And no one volunteered to go be the therapist for her to be the client. And it was just quiet. And finally I was just like, okay, I'll go. You know, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just went and she started talking about this situation between her and her daughter-in-law where like, her daughter-in-law was not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints like the rest of the family was. And she talks about how she wishes she could be closer to her daughter-in-law, but she said, you know, I'm trying so hard to include her and we're trying so hard to bring her in and trying so hard to explain things. And, and I'm sitting there just going like, I have no idea what the heck to say. But what I did notice is this pattern that she kept saying we're trying so hard all the time. And so finally, I just said to her, like, well, do you know what a Freudian slip is? And the class laughed because I'm trying to teach the teacher something. And she said, well, it's where you're something is so much on your mind that it eventually just comes out. And I said, yeah. And she didn't get what I was saying. So we, we went back and forth a few times. And then finally, she said, oh, my gosh, are you saying the harder I try to bring her in, the more I push her away? The harder that I try to include her, the more I push her away. The more I try to not offend her, the more I offend her. And I said, yeah, you said you had three other daughters-in-laws. Do you do the same thing to them? And she goes, oh, my gosh, no. She goes, in trying to treat her equally or the same, I'm actually treating her differently. And I was like, that's what it sounds like to me. And she's like, oh, that's fantastic. And so I just ran back to my chair, had no idea. Like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm done. But then I ran into her like about six months later and we, we happened to be in the same elevator and I was like, Hey, Dr. Cherry. And she goes, I'm sorry. I don't really remember names. And I said, well, how's the relationship with your daughter-in-law? And she goes, Oh my gosh, was that you? And I said, yeah, that, that was me. I was your therapist for that moment. And she goes, our relationship is fantastic. 
because I just started treating her like everybody else. And all of a sudden we have a fantastic relationship. She goes, I, I can't thank you enough for helping me realize that. And that was when I kind of thought, maybe I could do this. You, you professed the professor. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was one of those crazy moments of like, wow, you know, I, I didn't realize like I could actually have an effect on somebody. Well, like it sounds that. like you just really listened to her situation and instead of trying to therapize it, you were just human to human, I think. Yeah. And like, I kind of did it on accident in a way, cause I just didn't know what to say. So I was just purposely quiet. And then when I realized a certain pattern, I didn't want to tell her because I was like, I'm the student, you're the teacher. I don't want to tell you. And so I just asked some questions and she got it. And I didn't realize that that's therapy. Like you have mm -hmm. to sit and listen and you have to ask questions because you're generally, in, you know, curious. And then the client needs to discover it for themselves. And yeah, that was just one of those really cool moments, you know, for me. That well, kind of just... you know, okay. Funny you say that. Cause I'm, I'm reading a book because I do sales. I mean, I'm, so I'm reading a book, real estate sales called Ninja Selling. And it talks about in, in game terms, time of possession with the ball mm -hmm. and it says if you want to be good at sales or you know like what you do in you know therapy is you let them have time of possession you're not there's a there'll come a time when you need to have it but you ask the questions and let them tell you the story and they will tell you the story that you can then go okay well i see this piece and i see that piece this is how we can put it all together and make it work for you it's very, it's a lot of similarities, really. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just listening. There's a lot of therapy that goes on outside of therapy. My brother was my therapist growing up and still is now, you know, we just sat on each other's beds and expressed how we were frustrated about things. And he would listen and sometimes he'd call me out on stuff and, and then I would do the same thing for him. And, you know, it's just relationships and it's how you talk to somebody when you really care about them. Yeah, it's like some, we learned that in kindergarten a little bit. <laughs> we just, it's been academicized out of out of us. I just made that word up, so that's legit. So that's a legit made up word. Academicized. It's good. I'm using it. <laughs> so I'm writing it down. So I'll write never it use down. It. Hashtag that. <laughs> we can make millions off of that, or or thousands, whatever. Yeah. Okay. There's Rupees. lots of this. Is a very broad field of study and profession so is there certain aspects that you focus on and then why do you do that why why those well in in my master's program our teachers hated the word eclectic they, it, they just kind of felt like that means that you think you know a lot of things but you don't know much and so they said master at least four um type of structures or and the ones that make sense to you that help you understand things and then and then uh, then you can actually do really good with it. So I use like solution focused dialectic behavioral therapy. Family systems is really important. Cognitive behavioral therapy There's also what's called trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which I really like. And then, you know, substance use, uh, pornography, you know, addictive type of counseling as well. But your first one solution focused aren't all of them shouldn't they all be solution focused I mean, don't you want to <laughs> yeah solution focus is actually way? more of a brief therapy 
Okay. Like it's not supposed to go long and it has the belief that you already know the solution. You know, like you've probably already done something in your past. So like, for instance, I had a client who was really, you know, social phobias, you know, anxiety, depressions, you know, just needed social skills training and stuff. And then like, you know, I found out he, he actually did martial arts and I was like, well, tell me about the martial art philosophy that you, you know, you've been studying for years. He starts telling me that. And then I'm like, well, do you compete? And he goes, yeah, I compete. And, and I said, well, what's your routine that helps you get ready to compete? And, and he starts telling me his routine and the, and the things that he says to himself and how he makes sure that his focus is in the right way. And I said, well, how do you, how do you deal with the crowd, you know, that you're going to be out in front of all these people? And he starts telling me his routine and how he goes through that. And then all of a sudden it's just like kind of clicks to him that he's like, oh my gosh, like I already have the solution to a lot of my problems. I'm just not applying it to this specific situation. I'm only using it in martial arts, but I'm not using it in anything else. And it just kind of, that's how we shaped the therapy was, was how is your martial art applied in daily life? And that made, made it go really easy for him. Yeah. Well, there's probably lots of things that we can apply to our lives, which we'll go into later in this discussion. Uh, we can apply things. Yeah. He didn't realize he already had the solution. And so that's the well, kind of the focus that solution focus goes into, you know, I hired a life coach a few years ago and it was kind of a mess, but at the end, after I paid him ridiculously overpriced fees, I said, you didn't give me anything I don't already have, which pisses me off. <laughs> you sort of charged me for something I had to be, but you just helped me realize that I had it. And I guess that was worth the money I paid. I don't know, but I'm still mixed on that. But well, it's like the plumber, you know, he goes in and taps the pipe three times and then charges you $2,000. And they're like, why? And he goes, well, it's, it's, you know, 500 for knowing where to tap another 500 for knowing how to tap, how hard to tap, <laughs> you know, and he just adds it up. It's all about the experience. And yeah. then you just, you know, this, this is why I was able to do what I did is because someone else did it. They would have broken the pipe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. Um, like the, uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy. What's a little bit about that? This, this cognitive behavioral is means we're going to, we're going to angle in towards the problem, but we're going to do it through the, the cognitive, the thought process, you know, uh, which is in a little bit contrast to dialect behavioral therapy, which actually goes through the emotion. We're going to go through the emotion side first because the emotion needs to come down before you can actually get to the cognitive process. So there's one like, like, I don't know if you've ever heard about like borderline personality disorder. Uh, for yeah. a long time, nobody could treat it, you know, it was, you know, cause they were just so overly dramatic and overly emotional and, and all that. And, and what they did is they went, like, if we bring the emotion down, then all of a sudden we can talk to them logically. So then you can bring in some of the cognitive stuff. But then once they found out it worked with borderline personality disorder, they realized that actually works with everyone else. <laughs> so just depends on the client. Sometimes you got to go the emotional side and sometimes you can, you can go the, the cognitive side. So basically too many emotions. It's just, it's, it, it's just clouding their thinking. You can't think yeah. when they're too much. Well, emotion and logic have a negative relationship, not negative. Like they can't get along with each other, but it's more like a math equation. You know, it's like when, when one goes up, the other goes down. 
So if we have way too much logic, we're like a cold fish with no emotion. But if we have way too much emotion, then then we don't think straight. And so dialectic behavioral is about trying to find what's called the wise mind, which is a mixed, a, a good balance between emotion and logic. And so if you can bring that emotion down, then people think better. We don't punch walls when we're thinking clearly. We only do it when we're emotional. Fair point. <laughs> you know. So, okay. Um, all right. Let, let's jump down to the, the trauma focused. Uh, trauma focused cognitive behavioral is uh, it has three stages to it. So if you're working someone who has a traumatic event in their life, whether they've been sexually assaulted or a, a car accident or, or something like that. Um, stage one is about teaching cognitive coping skills, mindfulness, positive self-talk that helps prepare you for stage two, which is to um, now work through the trauma narrative. The narrative is what we say to ourselves, you know, after the event. Uh, some people think like, oh, I'm, you know, like three people get in a car accident. One guy gets in a car accident and he goes, oh my gosh, life is so short. Um, and so he's like, quits his job, spends time with his family, does service, you know, becomes, you know, a really nice person to everyone around him, you know. The second person gets in a car accident and goes, oh my gosh, life is short. So it's eat, drink, and be merry. You know, let's go bungee jumping. Let's do drugs. You know, let's visit a prostitute, you know, whatever. You know, it's like they tell a different story to themselves about the accident. The third one gets in the car accident and he goes, oh my gosh, driving is dangerous. I'll never drive again. Or I need an SUV in order to drive. It's like they could all be in the same type of car accident, but their narrative talks about how they, how they work through it. And so, like, if someone got, you know, has been sexually assaulted, like I've had clients before when they're in their teens and I'm working with them in their 30s, it's like, okay, we're not just going to take the narrative of when it happened. We're actually going to include the narrative of all the years afterwards because now you're older and wiser. And that's where people start going, well, instead of a victim, I'm now a survivor. Or instead of a victim or a survivor, I'm a thriver because now they've been able to change the narrative of it, you know, after, you know, being able to process through it or process those emotions. The third phase is just whatever loose ends still need to be tied up afterwards. So okay. um, that one actually can be done pretty quickly too, like a couple months, you know, 12 sessions, you can go through all three of those phases. So that's why it's important to know like each, you know, an, you know, a, a way of structuring your therapy because then you can, you can personalize it to the client of what they need. So how do you know if you're successful? Like what is, 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 is it if they never see you again? That's the hope. That you did. did <laughs> yeah. I, my goal is to, is to turn my clients into their own therapist, you yeah. know, so that they can do their own assessment. They can do their own maintenance. You know, they can call themselves out or ask themselves the right questions. You know, I love it when the client's like, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. And we, and you, you know, first you meet like every week and then after a bit, you can go every other week and then maybe you go once a month and then maybe it's like once every couple months just for a little maintenance checkup or something. You kind of figure that out with the client of how they want to do it afterwards. But it's always uh, nice, like working in residential treatment, I would get, I mean, I've got a big box full of high school graduations or letters about, Hey, I just got my driver's license or, you know, graduated from college, getting married, having kids. Like, um, it's amazing, you know, to be able to see, you know, how people want to be able to keep in touch with you afterwards. 
um, doing things that they may not otherwise have had the capacity to do prior to you helping them out. Oh yeah. Like I've, I've helped a, a, a young lady who was, you know, sexually assaulted and she's like, never understood how she could ever have a relationship like that with ever again. But, and then like all of a sudden, you know, years later I get a, a, a wedding announcement, you know, like, like those are ones that like, you know, you, those are sacred. Yeah. You know, and, and then to find out she's having kids and, you know, it's those, those are amazing. And that's one of the cool things about being a therapist is like people come and tell me things that like they don't tell anybody else. And I have to treat that as, as sacred ground. You know, I'm walking on sacred ground. I need to take my shoes off, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, with Moses and the burning bush, it's like, you're, this is sacred things that people are telling you and, and you need to treat them as such. And, but the, when you see them overcome those things and become stronger, you know, because of them, um, I had a client once who he was, he was motivated. He was going to go into the military and, uh, and he told me, yeah, I'll make it through college and I'll make it through, you know, the military, despite the fact that I have depression. And, but then as we worked through these things with him and, um, I diagnosed him with, with, uh, dysthymia, which is kind of a, a distractible depression. I said, we just need to get your, your daily schedule set up. So you always have something to do. So you're always distracting yourself from your depression in positive ways. And he came back, you know, after a number of sessions and stuff, he's like, I can't believe how much stuff I can get done in a day. Cause as soon as he started feeling the depression, it just cued him to, to do something, you sweep the floor, do the dishes or something, call somebody, you know, get your homework done or whatever. And then at the end, the very last session, Remember, he said, I'll still graduate despite my depression. At the end, he says, I know I'll make it through school and I know I'll make it through the military because of my depression. Interesting. So maybe had he not struggled with that, he wouldn't have motivated himself to do more. Oh, it's it's amazing how like people will say, I'm so grateful for my anxiety. I'm so grateful for my traumatic experience. I'm so grateful for, I'm like, you're grateful for those things, but they're, they, they know that without those problems and then working through them, they wouldn't be the strong person that they are. And, you know, that's the miracle of it. So going kind of <clears throat> going through their shit can make them shine, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But it's the way you clean it off. Yeah, you know, the way you clean it off using, <laughs> Using that as a furniture, like a polish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like true. a Rolling Stone gathers no moss, right? But it's like, it's because it gets chipped off. Well, and so. Yeah. And most of these people, these successful gurus and people that you follow and see all say the same thing. They said they'd never trade the crap they went through because of what it made them, what it turned them into, what it, what it made them. Yeah, but we don't think that in the moment. In the moment, you know, it, it, sucks. it sucks and it hurts and, and you don't want it to be there. But afterwards, when you see how much stronger you are, you know, because like what you're saying, that, that shit, it's fertilizer. You know, we realized that like, actually, it made me grow. It, 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 it actually nourished me. It actually made me better. And so after someone's gone through something like that, they don't want that bad part of their life to go away grateful for it which is nuts <laughs> you know all right um well we can talk about this next 
either the dialectic behavioral therapy or we can move on to uh, some other bigger things. What do you, do you want to? Well, one other thing about dialectic behavioral therapy that I really like is the fact that it's, it's, it talks about creating a life worth living. Okay. Like that's the real goal. You know, we don't, if we just let our life just kind of come at us, then we've, we find ourselves on like a, like like on a default setting. And so you find yourself kind of feeling behind or you're always reactive to whatever's going on. But if you're trying to develop a life worth living, then your life is more proactive and you respond to the events instead of react to them. You know, mindfulness is, is not just always about being calm or, you know, having that quiet time in the morning. It's about the discomfort. It's about practicing it so that when life becomes uncomfortable, you can still be mindful. Um, you know, Nathan Sellers, who you've had on this podcast before, uh, a good friend of mine, when he was doing one of his ice bath things, talked about, you know, that's, you know, accepting the discomfort of the ice bath as just being cold. That's all it is. Don't judge it. Because mindfulness is something you become. It's not something you practice. And I just thought that's really profound. You know, we, we become mindful. We don't just practice it. Very, very true. We can talk about the ice baths in a bit as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that because that's yeah. good stuff. It is good stuff. Can people, can people, like, why do they need you? Why, I mean, why, why do people need a therapist? Why can't they just figure it out themselves or, you know, self-reliant, the world that we're in, everybody's self-reliant, but why do they need well, you? Well, I mean, you could figure it out. It would just take a whole lot longer. You know, like if you're trying to find out something on your own, like, like if you heard the saying, you know, the person who is self-taught had a fool for a teacher. I've never heard that actually, but that's, you know, like if I asked you to, to design a car, but you weren't allowed to use any past knowledge and you were not allowed to research it or talk to a mechanic, what kind of car would you come up with? Yes. Like it's, it's going to be very similar to the very first cars that ever came out. But if you actually sat down with somebody who knew how to design a car and, and had all the research available for you and then could just personalize that for you with you, then what kind of car are you going to come up with? Fair point. You know, so why do we go to a teacher? If you want to play a guitar, go to a teacher. If you want to learn biology, go to a teacher. You know, if you want to learn something, don't try to learn it on your own. Um, some people do have some natural talent and natural ability, but if they went to a teacher, it would highlight that and accentuate that so much more than if they just did it on their own. I guess if you're a glutton for punishment and you really just enjoy the process, you can do it on your own. <laughs> but yeah, nobody, everyone's in a hurry. We don't want to wait. Yeah. I mean, if you want to be good at life, get a teacher. Get a life. Get, yeah. Have a life, get a teacher. Yeah. And, and a lot of parents don't understand these things because their parents didn't understand it and their parents didn't understand it. And so we just, we all just kind of doing the best we can. But, you know, my wife would edit all my papers for me because I have learning disabilities as well. I have a dysgraphia and I have an auditory processing issue. And so she would always read my papers, but through, through that, she was learning about thinking errors and family dynamics and all this stuff. And she said, I think everybody should go through a master's of social work program. It should be a requirement for life. And that's just a profound way to say that, you know, it's just like we should. It should just be like everyone, it's available to you. You know, that's a good, instead of all the other stupid general ed that schools make you take <laughs> that are dumb and irrelevant, checkbook and, and 
social work. Since you've been in this 20 years, there's, you know, there's a stigma around mental health and going to therapy and people don't talk about it or they're afraid to talk about it. Tell me, tell me how that's changed in the time you've been doing this and you know why. It's changed in a couple of different ways. It one definitely for the better because you know, people can talk about it more. People are willing to, to, to go to therapy. It's like a solution. You know, it's like an option uh, that they can think of. Uh, they're, they're not afraid to tell people that they've been going to therapy or what they've learned from it. And there's much less of a stigma with that as well, which is awesome, you know, which we totally need. There's a negative part to, to it as well, where there's some people who look at their disorder as like a badge of honor. Oh, I have anxiety, you know, and uh, I have depression. And so I'll say like, well, what are you doing about that? They're like, oh, I don't know what to do about it. So I just tell other people so that, you know, they, they work around it. You know, it's like, what? Like, I've actually had people say that to me. That it's like, you're actively not working on it. And so it's almost like a learned behavior. Like having anxiety means my life sucks, but telling people, I have anxiety means that they'll make my life a little easier for me. And then they always have something to complain about. So almost a badge so, of honor to be a victim. Of something it. like that. You know, it's, yeah. it's because they don't know what to do about it. So they're like, well, I might as well just get out of things. This is who I am. I can't fix it. So might as well. Yeah. No, it's, you can like, we all have anxiety, you know, but there's a difference between a disorder or not. Like the, I ask people all the time if they know what the word disorder means and no one knows what it means. Um, I got to ask you, do you know what the word disorder means? Well, there's order, which we like things are uh -huh. in a logical succession and there's disorder when it's all over the place and you don't know what's going on and what's coming next. Right. And I, you good? know, I get Did that. That's a, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good guess. I mean, and it's, it's a, it's a, and it's a great answer too, but a disorder just means that whatever the, the was in the line before, you know, an anxiety disorder and eating disorder, learning disorder, whatever, whatever's in that blank before means that is such a bad issue that I can't function normally in my daily life or the ADLs, my activities of daily living, you know, you know, a mother who's got OCD about germs and she's cleaning the house so much that she can't get her kids to school. You know, it's like, um, so it's like, if it's so bad that it's, that it's ruining, you know, the, your activities of daily living, then it's, then it's a disorder. But people can have anxiety and it's not a disorder. People can have schizophrenia and it's not a disorder with the right medication, the right education, the right type of social skills training and stuff like they could function. So it's like you can be depressed and it not be a disorder. So it's like just because we have something doesn't mean it's, you know, it's it's a weakness. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, they can't function. But some people think like, oh, I, I don't, I didn't want to take that test because it was making me anxious. Like, well, it should. It's okay. <laughs> that test should make you anxious, you know. But that anxiety should motivate you to study more, you know, because it's the studying that brings the, the anxiety down. So. Because, yeah, I've never heard the word anxiety more in my life than in the last few years. And yeah, yeah I know the whole world's been affected by COVID and that's changed everything, but that's anxiety it's almost lot it's almost lost its meaning in some ways yeah in some ways it's it's defined two ways clinically and socially and they're both different you know and we should go with the clinical definition not the social definition it's a cop-out it can be 
Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't want to say that it is because there are, you know, and we do need to work on these things, you yeah. know, but, but if you're not willing to work on it, then I would say you're not allowed to complain about it either. It's like someone who doesn't vote for that, but then they complain about the policies and the, and the politicians. And it's like, well, you didn't help. Yeah, <laughs> so get in the vote, arena or you can't complain. You don't, you don't get a chance. You can't complain. I think I asked, oh, well, you know, why are we, why do people, you know, go, don't go to therapy and stuff. And it's, it's interesting how we will maintain and we'll spend thousands of dollars maintaining a car or, or right. our, our carpets cleaned or our clothes and all these things that just don't matter, but you go get yourself fixed. Like, Ooh, that's, Ooh, that's mm, cuckoo. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, maintenance, all the things that don't matter, but the stuff that really does matter, we don't have time for yeah. or the money for. So, but, you know, people won't go to therapy because they think it's a weakness, you know, or the number one thing that it's because it's vulnerable. You know, we don't like vulnerability. It's not, it's not fun. People Do don't know that, what to expect. You think that's a relatively new, like, was there a period in time in history where people didn't mind being vulnerable or is this a new thing about it? That's a badge of honor being vulnerable that you're willing to say things that are scary and, and your, you know, our weaknesses and sharing our weaknesses. Now vulnerability has always been there. You know, nobody likes to be vulnerable, but it, it, it's really about, you know, our culture needs to help teach us how to deal with vulnerability because you know, I think, you know, like Brene Brown has great research on she's amazing shame and vulnerability. And, and one of the things she said that I just love is like, if you want to be one of those wholehearted type of people, the wholehearted people don't enjoy vulnerability. They don't like it. They find it uncomfortable, but they also believe that vulnerability is necessary in their life in order to be a wholehearted type of a person. And that's, that's profound. I love that. You know, it's like, you have to be willing to take risks or else you're not going to thrive you know a person who just does what they can will just stay what they are you know you gotta you gotta risk you gotta do something different and people i th i think that yeah there's a fear of it there's a fear of being judged for it but mm -hmm. i think more and more seeing the real side of someone people will give grace to that all day long and oh say, yeah oh you okay, you're, you were a miserable human being up until this point, And then you changed and you pivoted. Now you're an amazing human doing amazing things and influencing the world for good. People like that's cool. They can identify with that because everybody's got some crap and vulnerability that they're trying to hide or get rid of or, or, or expose. Mm -hmm. um, no, when we see true vulnerability, like it's, that is something that changes the people around us. You know, when we really see somebody step forward and are willing to risk, like we will be patient with that all day long and that'll inspire us to, to do the same. Is there like an example you can point out of, of you know, a patient or somebody you've, or a story you're, you're aware of that? Well, like, let's say for instance, I, I saw this, uh, this, this woman speaking at church. And nobody likes public speaking, you know, and you'll hear people give like disclaimers, like I'm really not the best person to give this, you know, share this thought or whatever, you know, 
And she was given a topic that you could tell she was overwhelmed with. It was the atonement of Jesus Christ. Like that's a pretty deep and yeah, odd one, you know? Yeah. But I, you know, this was like eight years ago and I'll still never forget this. Like she, she went up to the microphone. You can tell she's kind of shaking. There's a little shake in her voice. And she said, I don't want to be here. But as I was studying the atonement of Jesus Christ, I realized he could help me write the talk. And when the time came, he would help me give it. And I tell you that chapel went silent and it was like, everybody was like, you go girl. Like we are listening, we are patient and we will. And there was a huge amen at the end of her, at the end of her talk. But I don't remember the rest of her talk, but I will never forget that that statement because it wasn't a disclaimer. It was an expression of faith. You know, it's like, I don't want to be here, but I believe I can do it with his help. You know, and it was just like there, you, you can't get a better dis, you know, sermon on, you know, the atonement of Jesus Christ or something like that. But like her willingness to be vulnerable just made everybody silent and everybody patient and everybody listened. That's powerful. I could, I felt that when you told me, because usually people will get up in those settings and say how much they hate this. Right. Hey, I suck at this. I hate this. I don't want to do this. And yeah. It's my first time giving a talk. I, ho- I hope I, I do. Okay. I don't want to, like... I don't want to hear you say that. Don't tell me how much, like... much you suck when you get up there. Cause now I'm going to think you suck. <laughs> right. That, it just makes the congregation focus on their, their own weaknesses. But when she did that, it just made all of us think about like, well, what's something I can express more faith in, you know, like it was just a beautiful example. And, and I wanted to use that one specifically. I have a, a number of ones in therapy as well, but, but, you know, I don't want people to get good at coming to therapy. That's not the goal. The goal is to get good at life. And that's a real life example where, you know, she just went up and just expressed faith rather than doubt. And, you know, she wasn't a client of mine. She wasn't, she's just a neighbor. And, uh, but it, it was just such an amazing example of willing to be vulnerable. And that's a good, that's an, an awesome, uncomfortable feeling that stretches you. Oh yeah. And when we see it, it inspires us to do it. Yeah. Yeah, because we're in a culture that, generally speaking, wants you to hide that. Yeah. Don't talk about all your crap. Keep that hidden because nobody wants you. You're just a Debbie Downer. Yeah. Don't talk about it unless you have, you know, it was years ago and you're so successful now, you know, like then they'll go back and they'll talk about it, you know, but it's like no one will talk about it while they're going through it. Yeah. And we should. Because we'll get through it quicker. Because we, we can do. learn from each other and realize, oh, because we when we when we have crap, we think we're the only one. It's so dumb. We think we're the only like this is new. You're yeah, the only one that's ever experienced anxiety. Yeah, there's another quote that I like it says the personal is the universal if we're honest about it. If we're both honest about the way that we are personally, we'll realize that we all feel the same way. We all feel this, have all the same similar issues. And if we're willing to sit down and talk about it, we realize that all these issues that we try to hide are actually universal. Yeah, we're all connected. We all have this. We're all on the same bus. Yeah. I know. <laughs> what are some things that that we haven't chatted about that you or that I haven't asked you that you want to touch on? 
I mean, we haven't talked about how to get in touch with me or anything if they wanted to do therapy. We're getting there. I'm, yeah, we'll get there. We're getting there. Um, but we, you know, the, you know, therapy isn't necessarily hard. Um, it's just if if you come in and you're willing to do it, especially if you need to, if you do your work, because I think a good therapist will give you homework. There are different situations. I have a few clients that I've seen for a few years and it's just maintenance type of things. And so I don't really give them a lot of homework. It's just about making sure that they're still doing their work. Uh, that is becoming more of a habit, but, but, um, I've had a number of clients who have come to me and they're like, you're going to give me homework. And I'm like, yeah, they're like, my other therapist didn't give me homework. And I'm like, well, why aren't you still with them? And you're like, well, it wasn't working. Mm, big <laughs> surprise. Like, it's like, well, you know, I'm going to give you some homework to do. So we'll give you some homework and then you come back next week. And, you know, cause like for me, therapy is, is like you're it's practice. And then eventually you need to go out on the field, but the coach can't go out on the field with you, you know, but we can take timeouts and you can come and talk to the coach and then go back out on the field. But when you're on the field, the, the, the coach can't be with you. And so you practice here you know, this is where we have the quarterback meeting or whatever you want to call it, you know, but then you actually have to go out on the field. So you've got to put that stuff into practice. And I'll give an assignment and sometimes they'll tweak it. That that goes a little bit more towards their personality. And, and I want to be able to know how they tweaked it and go, yeah, that's right. I like it. I like how you did that. You're still hitting the important parts. And sometimes they'll tweak it and I'll be like, mm, you're, you're trying to avoid this part or this part because I know it's a little hard to do those. But so, but you need to be able to make those adjustments, but the client should also be able to adjust the assignment as well, as long as they're hitting the principles that they need to. And then I can double check that and go, okay, you are hitting those. Then yeah, they can personalize it however they want. Earlier we mentioned ice baths. <laughs> yeah. You, you've just recently started doing, I've been doing it for four or five months. Talk to me about what that was like. We'll compare some, some stories there and, and just kind of the mindset around that and how this can apply to everything. Well, my friend Nathan, you know, put up a video on his YouTube channel doing these ice baths. And I was like, I want to try that because what it is, is it's self-induced crisis, basically, <laughs> you know, you put yourself into freezing cold water and your body's going to freak out. And I wanted to test my own mindfulness techniques that I've been teaching for years and that I've been following myself for years. I wanted to test it, you know, to like see how I could do. Do these mindfulness practices work? Like my clients tell me they work and I go through life just fine and, and they work. But to put myself into like a self-induced crisis like that, I just thought it would be, and people think I'm crazy and they're like, you thought that'd be fun? And, uh, it was fun and I lasted six minutes and I, and I, and I got out because I, we were filming it cause I put it on my YouTube channel and I didn't want it to be too boring. You know, no one wants to sit there and watch me in an ice bath for 20 minutes or something like that. And Old so, white man sitting in a tub. A little creepy. Yeah. And so I got out because I wanted to, and, and when I wanted to, and it was really validating for me to be able to go these mindfulness practices that I teach, they work. They work well and and but also the the assignments that i give people are are, are ways of bringing you know self-inducing the issue in a way that they're in control and then they use the skill to get through it so that when the other times they come up but it's not in their their control but that's what ice baths kind of do 
there's a lot of great studies that also talk about how it how it resets your nervous system, how it resets your brain waves to the to a higher level. Um, it's uh, ice baths are amazing that you know people athletes you know they'll do ice baths after big workouts and stuff it helps with soreness it helps reduce swelling um you don't stay in forever but there there it's a great experience and it teaches you how to deal with crisis so that's what i really enjoyed about it tell me about your experience with ice baths why do you get into it a friend invited me and i'd heard about it and I figured I'd go give it a shot. And the, what was interesting is I was scared at first. Yeah. And you started, I started out in a sauna for, you know, 150 degrees or whatever it sauna is until that's uncomfortable. And then you go out and you get into, I think the tub I went into was 48 degrees. And when I got into it, it was a shock, of course. But the biggest the hardest part was thinking what it would be like. Yeah. And that's, that's what all these people that on made comments about you doing it. And when I first did, started doing it and posting it on my social, people like, you're nuts. I could never do that. <laughs> oh, I can like, no, you, you could, it's, it, you can. And I do it three or four times a week. And when I'm sitting in my hot tub, really comfortable, I'm like, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to go sit in the ice. Yeah. I, I still don't want to do it, but I know it's easy now. It still hurts when I get in it. I do about five minutes. I go in the hot tub for 10, ice for five, back to the hot tub and then back to the ice. And it's still, <laughs> but at least I know what it's going to be like, but I still, so it's still hard. It's never, it, it's easier mentally, but it's still uncomfortable and it's still, you still have to breathe and you still have to do the mindfulness but it's just interesting. I tell people, you can do this. It's people say, I'm not a morning person. I'm not of this. I'm not of that. Well, you aren't because you've decided that's what you're not. But if yeah. you decide, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be an ice bath weirdo and I'm going to do it. And it's just knowing that I can do this. Yeah. And the principles of mindfulness that you're hitting is like, you're not supposed to judge. You know, as soon as you judge the situation, the situation changes. So it's like, I don't like the cold. Well, that's a judgment because the reality is that it's just cold. Yeah. You know? And so, but if you start judging it, this is hurts. This is painful. It's like, no, it's just cold. That's all it is. Like yeah. imagine a guy sitting outside in the rain, freezing cold rain for like 15 minutes because his car, he just paid the fine for his car to be impounded and he's waiting for it to come out, but he's standing in the rain for 15 minutes for him. That rain sucks. It's just a, another part of the suckiness of the story because I had to pay the fine and I had to wait for this and then I'd wait for 15 minutes. But, you know, it goes six blocks north and a guy's waiting outside to buy movie tickets to his favorite movie and he's been out there for a day in the rain. That rain is totally different to him. It's cold, it's freezing, but he's like, it's, it's, a, sh it's a showing of how passionate he is about that movie. And so when he tells the story about that movie, he's going to talk about the rain. He's like, I stayed in the rain for a day, you know, to get that. And the other guy's like, man, they made me wait for 15 minutes to get my car. The thing is, it's the same rainstorm. It's just cold. But because of the way they judge it, changes the experience. And so when you're talking about, about uh, the mental part about getting in, you know, if you're judging it negatively, it will be a negative experience. It'll just be self-torture. But if you 
go, this is purposeful. I have reason behind this. Then all of a sudden it's a great experience. I had a great experience with it. It was 34 degrees yeah. and we had to chip the ice with a hammer and I had a great experience. Yeah. But you know, people were like, oh, I hate the cold. It's like, that's a judgment. Don't yeah. judge it. Well, just, funny this morning cold. I got in and I was distracted. I wasn't really focusing on my breathing and, and it started to hurt and I was annoyed and I just couldn't, I set a little timer and I couldn't wait for the timer to go off. I'm like, ah, this is pissing me <laughs> off. I've never been pissed off until this morning. And it was just weird. Cause I was just focused and I was in a hurry and wanted to be somewhere else. And so, but just changing that and like, Oh, this is cool. We're good. This will work. But it's interesting how that, and I've been doing it a lot, but it was yeah, hard this morning. And it's similar. Like if someone gets an assignment to speak in church and they go, I don't like public speaking, that's a judgment, you know, yeah. or my anxiety is coming up. Oh, my anxiety comes up, I, you know, and they judge it as anxiety is a horrible thing. Then it becomes a horrible experience. So we have so much more about, control than we realize. Oh, it's amazing. We have all the control. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unreal. The two main skills that I teach are how to identify, you know, your emotions so you can communicate them that helps you control your emotion and the other one is is the how do you talk back to yourself the, the story you tell right. yourself yeah it's like those are the two biggest so skills critical. that i teach all the time and those are the two biggest things of making it through an ice bath but it's also the biggest things of you know when a real crisis comes it's how do you manage the emotion and how do you talk back to yourself with it it doesn't yeah. change so uh any any uh final thoughts before i ask you how people can get in touch with you and they can connect with you well, another, you know, just the one last thing is that people will ask me like, well, do you follow the things that you, that you teach in therapy? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I better. <laughs> yeah. Know? Otherwise I'm a fraud. Yeah. Or I'm a hypocrite or something. So like I talked about earlier with the life worth living, trying to live a life worth living, like doing it on purpose. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm trying to do right now in my life that I'm trying to push myself. Like I own my own business now. That's a huge push. I got to learn about taxes and licensing and all these different type of things i'm licensed in new york and new jersey not just utah so it's like i got to learn that the different laws and things in those different states of doing health, telehealth and then you know um i have my own youtube channel where i do like therapy questions video essays of movies because i love movies and i love to be able to you know analyze them um you know the ice bath challenge you know i i put a, i'm a drummer so i i put on my youtube channel like little drum covers and stuff like that these are all just things i do to try to stretch myself and i'm gonna i'm trying to do a podcast as well i have a friend who we're thinking about putting one together i've also just about to publish a book uh, about public speaking in church you know I, I try to give some instruction and help people with with their public speaking but specifically towards speaking in church and that's been about a two-year project that i've been doing and i've got two other books that i'm working on as well and then people go like where do you find all the time for all this and it's like we all have the same time that einstein you. and you know you know and thomas edison had you know all these people that it's like you know to say i don't have time is a is an improper judgment on the fact of of what time we do have so it's like make time you know, set a goal, but it's not just setting a goal. It's set the small steps as well to be able to obtain it because the goal is the, the end part. But what are all the little steps that I need to be able to do? There's so many steps to go into writing a book. And, uh, you know, and now I've only got like maybe 10 left out of the 300 
but I just went through them one by one. And that's what makes a life worth living is like you live on, you live your life on purpose, you know, like make time to do the things that you want to do. You make time for what's important. Yeah. And so just make it important. But, you know, when people come into therapy and they start learning how to do this, like they empower themselves and then, then they can go on and be their own therapist. And it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, so, so I, live uh, your life on purpose. Don't do it on accident. Cause if we don't do anything great on accident. No, no, I, I signed up to do a Ted talk and I didn't get selected for this one, Wow! but I'm going to keep trying. They're going to do another one in in August because I don't want to do it, but I want to do it. It scares me. I can be a clown in front of a a crowd and and feed off the crowd. That comes easy for me, Uh but to prepare something that I have to memorize and do it a certain way scares me to death. So I'm like, I'm signing up for this because I will. It's never going to feel comfortable to do it. It'll never be the right time. That's awesome. Yeah. And then when you do that, the, here's the key. Like when you walk away from that stage, it's about what do you say to yourself? Do you say, who glad that's over? Or do you say, wow, now that I did that, what else can what I do? What else can I do? You yeah. know, yeah. it's like the people who say, who glad that's over, they don't grow. They have an experience and then they walk away from it and it doesn't change anything for them. Yeah. But the ones who say, well, now what else can I do? Yeah. They're the people that grow, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'd love to hear, I want to hear that. And I want to hear what you said after you walked off the stage. <laughs> yeah. I got to try, try to figure out a friend of mine got selected. And so she's going on, but she's done a lot more public speaking than I have. And other than speaking in church, I've not done any public speaking that I'm, oh, that, that would I would be... consider technically public speaking. See, that fills me with anxiety to think about that, which means I would like to do that. Yeah. And that's why it fills me. And I just talked to another guy the other day about doing improv. That scares me, but I want to do that too. Oh, interesting. Because it stretches, it stretches me. And so I'm doing that. But anyway, how can, uh, enough about me, how can people find you? Um, well, they can go on my website, which is Cameron-R-Armstrong.com. CameronArmstrong.com was an architect in Canada has that one. So I have to give him credit for that. Uh, but it's Cameron-R-Armstrong.com. You can go on there. Um, you can request a consult on there. You can email me straight from that website as well. Um, so that's that's a good way to get a hold of me. Awesome. That's how a lot of people are. I'm also on the Alma network. Um, which I do a few insurance ones from there. I'm on uh, Aetna, Optum are the insurances I take through that. Everyone else I do uh, out-of-pocket pay, but I can also give you a what's called a super bill, which means I can give you a, uh, an invoice that you can submit to your insurance. So I hope to get some um, reimbursement. I can't guarantee it, but at least it gives you an opportunity. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much. This has been really eye-opening and, and fun to talk to you about it. Um, we all need it. We all need some level of it in our world so we can then, you know, become better and make the world better. No, definitely. No, I appreciate you having me on. And I, what I want you to do is I want you to th- think about those public speaking while you're in your ice bath. Because if you can handle the small little crisis that comes up in your body with those ice baths, it'll prepare you for those moments where you have to public speak as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm excited. I'm so that's your, your frustrated that I didn't get chosen this time, but that's just kind of the world that God, God or universe tell me. Yeah. Well, I'd like, 
I'd like to know how you're doing that because I'd like to give it a shot as well. That that totally seems like a huge stretch. Yeah. But I'd I'd love the information to be able to do that. One of my neighbors did it, and I interviewed him about. He did like a ten minute talk a couple of years ago, and it was interesting talking to him about the experience and and just going through that. But I, it I have a friend who did a devotional at BYU, and I'm like, I'm, I'm I just barely worked up the courage to say is there a way I could do that? <laughs> Cause yeah. that seems like a huge stretch. That would be, but it, it would be such a, an, an awesome stretch. And why not? What's well. the downside? Nothing. Right. You know, nothing. The worst talk you ever give will, will you never be worse than the one you don't ever give. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so Alrighty, yeah, man. I'd like to just give it a try. Yeah. Appreciate you having me know. on, Brian. It's a Thank lot of fun. Thank you, sir. Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Parish the Thought Show.